Who are you? We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The people who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make the show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to listenerq, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q dot com slash curious and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered into a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Yeah. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash curious. That's ListenerQ.com slash curious. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast with Josh Peck. I, I'm Josh Peck. It's weird saying your name when, like, in the third person, the, the Curious Podcast with Josh Peck. Who is that? I'm him. He is me. I am they. We are we. Fucking what? Yo, guys, welcome back. This is such a pleasure. I can't tell you what it means to me that you guys are listening to this thing that was just a dream in my heart that I believed, you know, I figured that, like, I potentially was uh, interesting-ish enough to maybe listen to on a weekly basis, even though it's really like you're tuning in for the for the interview guests. But nevertheless, it's like, I, you know, I had a a small inkling of an idea that perhaps the way in which I wanted to execute this podcast would be compelling to you, the listener, and you are validating that, and that means a lot. God, it does. It really... (laughs) Wow. What's up? How are you guys? I wish there was some... I wish I could get some feedback, like some immediate feedback, where you could say, like, I'm well. I'm doing good. Just another, you know, another Tuesday. Or, conversely, you could be like, I'm not great, Josh, and I'll be honest. And I'm going to put myself out there in a big way and tell you that, you know, shit ain't serene. My life's not exactly going to plan, but I'm trudging. I'm getting through the day as best I can with the hopes that tomorrow may be better. And if that's you, fucking God bless. I know what that feels like, because I've been there. I will be there, like, tomorrow, maybe, you know? team doing the best we can and sometimes just not doing bad is good enough you know what I mean sometimes just the just existing gang is a gang I want to be a part of because I identify with that I know what that feels like it's not easy and it's not that hard well sometimes it's hard but you know I get it I do get it. What's going on in the world? What can I talk about? What what can I... Oh, Jesus. What can I use this platform to talk about so that I can make a complete fool of myself and, and become all the things that I hate? Oh, here's one. Here we go. Rush hour commuters were hard-pressed to find a copy of the New York Post near the Port Authority bus terminal in Times Square on Monday. A dramatic cover ad on the New York Post for the streetwear company Supreme turned today's tabloid into an impossible-to-find commodity. Basically, the New York Post put a Supreme emblem on their cover, and you can't find a New York Post 
anywhere in the city right now. Now, I'm not hating on the New York Post. It's actually like quite a fun read. It's, you know, I'm from New York and it's very much like bite size, some slightly salacious, uh, maybe that's not the right word, but like, you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's not exactly the times, let's just say. It's a good paper. I mean, I've, I've enjoyed it in the past. It's sort of taken a turn for the weird over the last couple of years. But nevertheless, they put a Supreme logo on their cover. And now you can't find it because every hype beast in New York City is like, yo, I got to get that shit. I don't completely identify or understand um, the that mentality. But like, God bless. Uh, Supreme is laughing all the way to the bank. And... I, you know, I see the cats waiting outside, like, the Supreme store. And granted, that was me at 20 years old outside the Bape store in New York on Green, Street, on Green Street waiting for the new drops. You know what I'm saying? Waiting for that new new to get some ill patent leather sneakers that I, three years ago, gave to the Goodwill. Because I said, I've got 24 pairs of these and I'm never going to wear them again. Because they're loud as fuck. They're dope. They'll probably come back in and, like you know, eight years in the style and I'm going to be so upset at myself that I didn't have the foresight to know that these are going to be dope. And right now it's just like a resting period because it seems like anything that was cool once will be cool again. But damn, I mean, you put that Supreme logo on something and people, they just, they got to have it. They need it. So I can't even really hate, like it's dope that people are so into it, I guess, but I don't share that. Maybe I'm just getting old. I don't quite, I don't understand what all the fuss is about. You know what I mean? But yeah, I'm old. I'm getting old for sure. Um, oh, this was, this was some interesting shit right here that, that really deserves some talking about. And God knows I know it's worth talking about. Um, oh, Huff Post. Boom. Is it ever okay to check your partner's phone? Marriage therapists weigh in. In a survey, one in four women... And one in five men admitted to doing so. Well, HuffPost, allow me to weigh in with my feelings here at The Curious Podcast with our lead contributor, Josh Peck. No, it fucking isn't. There's never a time when it's okay to look at someone else's fucking phone. I have set that rule. I believe in it truly and deeply that nothing good can come out of looking at your spouse's phone. Now, if my wife were to look at my phone, she would find nothing. The only thing that she might slightly bristle against or, you know, find odd is, is maybe, you know, a half-naked selfie that I've taken of myself in the, the bathroom mirror to see if I've got any gains. And look, I'm not a perfect person and I'm not proud that I take photos like that. And I don't usually, but look, sometimes I'm weak. Nevertheless... I can't believe how many people look at their spouse's phone secretly trying to find something. And you always will. You're always going to misinterpret some some odd text, some weird exchange that you weren't privy of or you don't know the history of. So something that was fairly innocent to you seems like, I knew he was a scumbag or I knew she was... She was floozing around on me with Jeff <laughs> at the office. They're probably out, you know, getting all steamy during their coffee breaks and in my wife's Toyota Camry. And I knew it. 
But the truth is, it's like cheaters cheat. You know what I'm saying? Like the truth will come out no matter what. And so I made the decision early on in relationships in general, but of course in the most important relationship of my life, the one I have with my wife, that like I can't spend my life being worried or jealous or try to control the idea that like I will somehow be able to um, intercept a potential cheating moment if I'm just on my game. Fuck that noise. It does not work. My wife and I do not look at each other's phones. Maybe I'm tripping and she's looking at mine every other night and I just don't know it because she is smarter than me. But I don't think so. I don't think she needs it. I don't look at her phone. I'm not even quite sure of her code. I'll be honest. If we were in an emergency and all, all we had was her phone, I would only be able to use the SOS or emergency function on her phone if she wasn't able to tell me the code. Word up. Straight up. And it saves us a lot of discomfort and arguments. And I can't believe how many of my friends' wives and how many, how many of my friends' husbands look at each other's phones and the only thing that comes out of it is disagreements, arguments, and um, it's just static. Shit gets hectic. Mad quick. So, you know, I'm not Dr. Drew. I'm not a relationship expert, but I'm in one. Yeah, so, just saying. Um, I, yo, I'm not trying to talk your ears off. You know what I mean? Like, you're like, Josh, I, I, don't, I didn't sign up for this rant, but, you know, I'm, I'm feeling ranty lately. I think next week, actually, I'm going to bring one of my boys, my buddy Heavy, who's a good friend of mine, on the pod. And we're going to, like, chop it up for 20 minutes before the podcast, talk about current events, what's going on in each other's lives, just as a, as a test. And if you guys hate it, let me know. If you like it, let me know through some sort of channel. Just get my number. Get my number from someone. Anyway, today's guest, Danny Chun, my guy. Um, I love him very much. He is the creator of the show Grandfathered I did with John Stamos. He's also um, a writer and producer on shows like The Simpsons. Heard of it. The Office. Heard of it. Another show, Speechless, it's on the air now, that's gotten incredible reviews. Danny was nice enough to give me a job on Grandfather, the show he created. And uh, he's just so impressive and a really good dude, a mensch of a guy, as my people would say. Um, and we had a great conversation. So I'm really excited to share with you Danny. Enjoy. I keep, I keep the mics hot the whole time, baby. I know, yeah. You don't want you don't want to miss anything. I'm, I'm trying to get that. You never know what I'm gonna say. Yeah, right? Yeah. I wanna keep it live and I'm in dangerous. charge. <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty incendiary, I can already tell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some some shit's about to get popped off. Yeah, just start with all the secrets and the salacious stuff that I can sell to the tabloids. <laughs> Please. What's Steve Carell really like? <laughs> oh the real yeah, the real scoop on Steve Carell is he is a wonderful person. He just—he really <laughs> seems like a wonderful person. Yeah, he's great. He's awesome. I mean, yeah, I got nothing—nothing nothing bad to say about Steve Carell. Oh, I—I don't want it to be true. Someone that talented and so lovely. The, you know, the thing that they say, which uh, would be really damning of you, is that the people who become famous late in life are like the most grounded about it, right? And chill about it, which means that you're 
a real piece of shit, I guess. Well, it's a good thing that I'm hitting this this big divot in my career. <laughs> <laughs> right, so you can reset. Yeah, so it's like, it's nice. I'll have the next 10 years to become a real person, and then right, right. 40s will be my upswing. Right. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. let hold off on the inevitable um, delusion antidepressants. <laughs> um, so I was thinking about, you know, I was like just trying to do some mild research, even though I know you and we're friends before we did this. And the first thing that comes to mind when I think about you is just impressive. <laughs> impressive. That's, that's, that was what I was hoping you would say. Is that that's what really, you're yeah. putting out there? <laughs> that's the image. That's my brand. Impressive. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, like, for someone so impressive, and I'm sure you come into contact with these people all the time in our business, it's like, especially funny people, I don't know. I feel like you are the funniest person in the room and you have no need to prove it. <laughs> and I find that so refreshing because amongst comedians and funny people, it definitely feels like a constant one-upmanship, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely true with, like, especially performers, people who, who've, um, who've got that background more so than the writing background, although there's certainly plenty of really insecure, needy writers out there, too. Right. I mean, yeah, it, I think, like, part of it is... I don't know how much of it is, like, based on just, like, who I am. Like, you know, being Asian, I feel like, you know, kind of culturally there's, like, a certain, like, humility that they try to train into you, you know? Mm. But I also think it's just, like, part of just being, like, a comedy writer. I feel like you're so – you're constantly so self-aware of – because, like, I'm constantly observing and, like, making, like, kind of micro-judgments about everything I see and observations and stuff like that. Right. And – I'm fully aware that like other comedy writers are doing the same of me, and so like for you know generally like I try to just not I just try to like avoid being the uh, the object of someone's scrutiny too much, you know, like or you know or just being someone's uh, you know the target of someone's like crazy sense of humor or something like that. So right. generally, like I I feel like it's you know I'm content to just kind of sit back and be the observer rather than like the focus of attention but it does seem as though there's two types of well right now i'm like deciding like do i go asian road do i go comedy writer <laughs> road? where do i go want to want to handle both but i've noticed in just things i've worked on where it's like there are two types of writers there's the guy that's machine gun fire doesn't self critique that much just wants to yeah. it's like one out of ten of these is going to be you know flames yeah so and then there are the guys that are a little bit more calculated and take the time to craft something. Maybe they don't get the joke count in, but the yeah. ones they get are quality. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, and I you know, I feel like I'm the latter, right? You think, is that kind of what you're... I don't, you're so interesting, right? Because it was funny. I would even, I would think about certain things with your writing and that you were like, you were very stealth in the sense of like, the joke, your particular brand of comedy, which is the one I love, is like where jokes would creep up on you or mm -hmm. the setup would be you would hit – you wouldn't go in, in the um, typical direction that right. you would think the setup was taking <clears throat> you, which I love. Yeah. No, that's so, that's so nice to hear. Thank you. I mean part of it is just how my brain works. You know, I'm not like – I would be terrible at improv. Right. I think I would be horrible up. I would just die up there. And <laughs> right. I don't think that's true of a lot. I think a lot of comedy writers, even if they're not performers by nature or by background, would be great at improv. But um, my mind just doesn't work that way. And like, so I do have to sort of take the time to think up the joke and kind of approach it and, and craft it in my brain before I, I'm ready to say it. And the other thing I would say that kind of developed this is just 
the fact that my first job was at The Simpsons. Right. And, like, The Simpsons, like, basically is, like, this crazy, like, joke factory. Like, that's what you're doing. Like, 80% of the job is just pitching jokes. Right. You know, and and when I was there, you know, starting out, like, 22 years old, I was terrified. And I was really, like, it's funny, cause I, I actually came in really cocky. I was like, oh, like... You know, like nobody over the age of twenty-two is funny. I was like, I'm gonna, <laughs> right. do, I'm gonna blow these people away. I'm gonna like walk in here. These people who have kids and stuff, like no one's funny when they have kids. It's like, yeah. so I was like, I'm just gonna walk in here and like revolutionize these people's conception of what comedy can be. And then like the first day, I, at, by the end of it, I was like shitting myself. I was like, these people are so funny, and they're so smart, and they're so much better than me. Right. And so I just like over the course of the next few months, just to try to basically not get fired learned how to really sort of craft a joke and and thoughtfully, you know, sort of fine-tune it in my brain before I would say it because I didn't want to be that guy, especially the new guy and the young guy coming in and just, like, pitch, 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 like, just, you know, one in ten is decent, you know? Right. I really just wanted to feel like, okay, if I'm going to, you know, deign to talk in this room of legends, like... I got to have, like, something that the thing I say has to be at least pretty good. And so I would just sit there and, like, try to come up with something and, like, you know, probably, you know, the majority of things, jokes I would come up with, I would, you know, I would sort of nix in my own brain before I even said them. Does it it quickly become, because I know, like, having been able to work with, you know, a few legends here and there. It's like the quicker you can humanize them, the better. You know, the quicker yeah. you... And it's like, I'm an asshole, so all I want to do is find faults and be like, I knew it was all fluff and smoke and mirrors. Like, right. you're just like me. But inevitably, there is a certain sensibility of like... Like, I remember with our, our mutual friend, Dan Fogelman, and that he blessed me with two scenes in his movie with Pacino. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, like the God, you know? And yeah. I'm around him, and he's so... I'm like, you act a lot like Al Pacino. Chino. <laughs> like he's just walking around like, oh, I'm exhausted. You know, but like amazing and everything I could have asked for. And then first two takes, you're sort of like nervous and uptight. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is just play. This yeah. is this is just like the best night in acting class where you're you feel like you've got a partner there who's has your back completely. And if you're there for them, you have this great back and forth. So was that sort of how it was like working in, in that room of greats? I mean, some of them are, to this day, have not been humanized in my mind, and I'm still terrified of them. Really? Oh, yeah. And then, you know, I think it was just like the 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 fact that I didn't really have a choice. If I wanted to stay in that room, if I wanted to have that job, I just had to get used to it and get over it, you know? Right. And, yeah, I mean, certainly I'm sure that, like, one thing, I, one, thing one of the writers... Um, kind of said to me, uh, you know, after a couple months in was just like, he, you know, and I thought he was like one of the funniest people I'd ever been around. He was like, he, he was like one thing, he was like one thing you realize when you, when you get a job as a comedy writer is that no matter who you are, 90% of what you think is funny is not funny. Right. Uh, and that really like stayed, stayed with me. It made me really feel like, okay, it's like, I'm not the only one. Like when I, when a joke for me would fall, when I would pitch a joke and it would fall flat, I would be like, crying about it on the way home and then I realized like oh you just let that go you just like everyone does it the funniest people in the world some of whom were in that room you know the legends like George Meyer were just you know they either they were pitching you know their pitch success rate was like 20% or whatever you know right so that that really that really 
taught me. But do you, um, when you talk about your experience with Pacino, do you feel like that was your, like, do you feel like that was Pacino making you comfortable, or do you feel like you just kind of got comfortable and it wouldn't, and, you know, and, and, and it was sort of more about what, what you, you know, you, you acclimating to the situation rather than Pacino being a uniquely sort of, you know, approachable actor to work with or something? I would, I, in my experience, and I don't know how it's been for you, the more famous and uh, legendary the actor or in any sort of form, but as actors, the nicer and more accommodating they are. Uh They have no airs about them. They're natural leaders. They've proven themselves. Right. And you naturally, your game elevates Mm. to match theirs. Otherwise, it just won't work. Yeah. And it's a, it's a truly, and and I, it reveals itself more and more to me, and, and I feel like I get it now at 31, and, and if I'm still acting at 41, I'm sure I'll, I'll have an even deeper understanding of that acting, it's truly a selfless sport in the sense of your only duty is to serve the story and the words, like, and that's really it. And if you take care of it, it will take care of you. Right. And... I was watching, I got lucky enough to go to a class the other night that Vincent D'Onofrio was teaching, and oh, he, wow. said, he said something so interesting, which was so true, in that he said, any good writing, the intention of the scene is hidden. He said, because that's what makes it good. Because if it was very much in your face of like, this is a scene where you fall in love, or this is a scene, there'd be no nuance to it. It'd be very sort of cookie cutter. Yeah. So good writing is in the subtle ways that the writer has sort of peppered these intentions around. He's like, so it's your job as the actor to take the time to be a detective and find it, to find that hook and say, like, I really need to fall in love with her here. Or yeah. I need to, you know, be in total fear of my future or whatever, whatever the intention is. Right. And... So I found that to to be sort of true, that it's like, if the writing is good, the writing will take care of you, but you need to take the time to figure out really what the writer's asking of you. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, and I think that that's, I mean, the, the, he's, he's, he puts it in such a concise way, but I do think like that's often something that we talk about in like the writer's room. And I think it takes a while for writers to learn to talk this way about writing. But yeah, we'll often talk about like, okay, here's what the scene's about, but what's it really about? Right. Or like, here's what this episode is really about, you know? Uh, and and that's, yeah, that's totally, that's totally true. And even, I mean, the, the most random example, like I just saw the movie Blockers. And like, you know, when you see the ad for it, it's like, they say it's like, it's three three parents on prom night trying to make sure their daughters don't have sex. Right. right. Female super bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> John Cena, what more do you need to know? Exactly. Fucking see it. <laughs> but like... You know, but I saw it and I really liked it. And part of what I really liked about it was that it was about so much more than that. And, right. it, and it was a, it was actually a movie about these three parents who are sort of panicking about the fact that their kids are growing up and right. they're going to leave them. And like it becomes so it was so much richer and deeper for that reason, you know. And I went into it thinking it was just that surfacey sort of like caper of cock blocking. Right. Um, and that's why it was like to me, uh, you know, like, a, like, you know, the rare, like really interesting and good R-rated comedy. And that speaks to the point of like, I have a friend, a great writer, a friend of mine, Britt, and he always says like, don't forget that, that The Hangover is a love story amongst friends. Like, <laughs> it's about guys who really like care for each other. And 
that you can always write a joke later, but if the heart's not there, and I think Apatow does such a good job at this, like if the heart isn't there and this isn't a story that people can truly identify with, you know, no matter what, even if it's the funniest thing, half an hour through, people are going to lose interest because they're not invested in who these people are. Yeah. 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 Like whenever, that's why like, you know, I think most TV writers will say like the hardest thing is coming up with the stories. Right. And part of that is because like, you'd think it's like, it's really easy. Like on The Simpsons, when I started there, I was just like, oh, like, okay, you need stories like, okay, Homer goes to the Super Bowl. Homer goes to, you know, Homer takes up skateboarding. Homer, like, <laughs> right. become, Homer becomes a fireman. Like, what, what else do you need, guys? And what, you re- what I realized was, like, oh, the reason that it's really hard to come up with stories is because for any of those things, that's just the surface of it. And, and, and what you really are trying to find is, like, okay, what's going on between the characters right. in that episode where Homer becomes a firefighter or whatever? You know, is it like, is it, is it a marriage story where, you know, Marge is worried about Homer's safety for the first time or, you know, whatever it is. Right. And, and those are hard, both, it's harder to find, it's hard to find interesting things, you know, of that nature. And it's also hard to find ones that you haven't done a lot before. Right. Do you think, I guess let's go back to, I want to know, like, so you grew up in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and where are your parents from? Uh, my parents grew up in uh, Korea, South Korea. South Korea. And then when did they immigrate to America? In the mid-70s. In the mid-70s. And then Danny comes in 1980. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and oh, there you, you are. Yeah. I know stuff. <laughs> That's what's up. And so I guess we're... And you grew up in the Poconos? Yeah. Were you the only Koreans in the Poconos? There were a couple, but at my school, uh, there was... In my grade of like 270 people, there was one other Asian. Wow. She was, she was Chinese, yeah. Were you guys friends? No, I hated her. <laughs> that's like, that's how it goes, right? It's like, there's Sworn one other. enemy. Yeah, and it's like, oh no, I can't be this person's friend. Oh, I hated other fat kids growing up. <laughs> I really did. And I projected everything on them. So like when they would make jokes, I'd be like, insecure. <laughs> I'd be like, what are you running from? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so what was that? Because here you are, right? So really at home, you have these two parents who are pretty newly immigrated to this country. And then your life outside of home is as American as American gets. So what was that balance like growing up? Were you aware of that? Yeah, I was super aware of it. I mean, it was like a huge part of, I guess, my identity, you know, was just wanting to feel like wanting to assimilate, you know. And it's interesting, I think, like that that. You know, I think at that time in America, like, that was sort of the word that, that, that was like the buzzword among, I think, immigrants when they were talking about their kids. They wanted them to assimilate, right? Like, right. they wanted to, and, and, you know, my parents, they didn't move to, like, a, you know, a heavily Asian community or anything like that. We weren't living in Southern California or New York or something like that. We were in a place that had almost no Asians. And, you know, and so I think that was also part, you know, part of that was, I think, that they wanted us to you know, be around non-Koreans. Right. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that was a huge part of my identity was that sort of feeling of being a, you know, being a little bit of an outsider. And, you know, and I think that that's probably a lot of what informed me getting interested in comedy. You know, I think that so many people, there's always like, I feel like something in someone's backstory that they can point to as like the reason they got in, interested in comedy or you know, wanted to be a funny person. Right. Um, some sort of damage or some sort of, you know, 
some sort of insecurity or some something that made them feel different and wanted to wanting to be accepted. And I think that was probably it for me. And I did feel accepted. I had you know friends. I wasn't you know, it was not a miserable childhood at all. But I was constantly just aware of the fact that I felt like I was sort of a guest. Right. You know. Um, but I was I was happy and I was you know so it was not it it, it wasn't there was it wasn't traumatic. Do you think that because I have always felt that comedy is cultivated and it's a sense of humor is born out of it or a sense you know being funny comes from usually very unfunny circumstances and for me it's like whenever I see whenever I've you know been in an audition or met a guy that's like very good looking and hunkish and he's really trying to be funny, there's a part of me that goes, I'm probably funnier than you, and that's okay. Yeah. Like, because I was 300 pounds. Right, <laughs> like, right. And I'm a kid actor, and I never met my dad in the litany of other things of my weird story growing up. Yeah. But, like, I was for, I couldn't be the funny, or I couldn't be the sad, fat kid. I had to be funny. <laughs> right. I had nothing yeah. to get by. <laughs> and, like, and by the way, and some people, like, call me on this, I'd be like, I would have traded it in a second to look like you. Right. <laughs> to have had your, <laughs> yeah. you know, your beautiful uh, upbringing, but what have you, you know, it, it, it is what it is. And so, yeah, to your point, I that's think why it's, it's always so, so annoying when someone very good looking is also really funny. Who's that? Ryan Reynolds. He, Come on. Yeah. He's, he's really great. funny. Paul Rudd. No, he's a, Paul he's Rudd's, a handsome guy. Paul Rudd's, Paul Rudd's me good looking, like good looking for a normie. You right. know what I mean? Like he's not movie star good looking. Right, right, right. No disrespect, Paul Rudd. I love you. But <laughs> I think he'd be the first to say that. Yeah. I always, I mean, I get so caught in when I'm auditioning for things and that I sort of, I'm not charactery enough to be charactery and I'm not, you know, square jawed and, and leading man enough to be, you know, that guy. Right. And so I'm like, where's like... Where's just like the okay looking for a for a normal guy parts, you know, like <laughs> Paul Rudd, Tom Hanks, like these are just like okay looking guys. Like right. I could do that. Yeah, Steve yeah. Carell. Yeah, exactly. Just helps that they're comedic geniuses, but whatever, <laughs> no worries. Um, and so you know, I know I knew for me, and and maybe this is sort of universal amongst kids at any age, but I had a very specific upbringing. Like I had a single mom, and she was like fabulous and Jewish and loved the theater and was very like and domineering in all the best ways. And I felt myself slightly resentful only because I had such a need to want to be no, quote unquote normal, you know, what I saw on television and just be like an athlete and right. go home to a very like typical family life. And and I didn't have that with my mom. And it's all the things that I revere and appreciate about her now with some hindsight at 31. Yeah. But at 13, I was like, why can't I just be like my friends? Yeah. Did you have any of that growing up? Were you like a little bit, were you ever not resentful, but like a little bit of wishing that you could have, you could have what was out there? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, and I, I you know, I, I never resented my parents about it. I was never, you know, it, it was never that sort of thing, but um, definitely I just wanted, like, I didn't want my Asian-ness to be, uh, your, your a, thing, a thing that people would talk about. I wanted it to be like a tertiary thing, you know what I mean? Right. And, uh, and it's so funny though, because like, I think the older you get, the more comfortable you become with the things that make you different and unique. Right. But like when you're right. in middle school or something, like you're terrified of it. So yeah, like at that time, I remember the first time, like, I almost like surprised myself uh, you know, with the way I reacted, it was like, I was like six years old 
at like a music class, um, like at the YMCA or something. And we went around, and it was like all these six-year-old kids in Pennsylvania, all white. Right. And the teachers went around asking everybody what they had for dinner the previous night. <laughs> oh, and like, man. And, um, and one of those kids, like, spaghetti, and then one of them says, like, corn, and then another one says corn, and they come to me, and I had had, I think, like, some sort of Korean fish soup or something, right? And I just <laughs> said corn. <laughs> and then I was like, I don't think I'd ever had... I don't remember, like, I didn't even know what they meant, like, what the, when they said they had corn for dinner. I didn't even know what that <laughs> right. was. But, like, I, I remember I was, like, I felt a little twinge of, like, self-awareness and self-consciousness and shame that I had, like, lied about, about it. And my mom was in the room. Wow. You know? But I don't even know. If she, I don't know if she paid attention. And she, and she didn't, it's not like the, it's like, it wasn't, it's not like the story that has, like, the ending of, like, her crying in the car. Yeah, I imagine like, you guys making yeah. eye contact in a single tear rolling down her face. <laughs> no, like, and we never talked about it again. I've, like, never told that story until now. Like, it's... But I remember feeling like, oh, what... Why did I do that? <laughs> right. Yeah. And and that was a huge part of my childhood was just kind of, like, trying to, you know, like, avoid... You know, divert the attention away from the Korean stuff. Sure. But then in high school, you know... And in high school, then it became, like, a little bit more of a... N- a nuanced thing where I sort of started to own it in a comedic way a little bit more, you know what I mean? I became like, you know, kind of like... Yeah, in your bag of tricks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the fat guy who makes fat jokes by himself or whatever, you know? Right. And so, um, so yeah, that, that that became sort of, yeah, the, 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 the more kind of teenage way I dealt with it. But then at the same time also then people started to like, I started being a little bit more confident in it and, you know, my friends were really in, excited to come over to my house and eat Korean food and use chopsticks and stuff, and it sort of became a little bit more of a, you know, of a of, an, of a feature and not a bug. I'd pick Korean fish stew over corn any day. Oh, I know. Right? Now, yeah. Are you kidding? I, yeah. I, yeah, it's, it's all I eat now is Asian food. Yo, guys, what's up? Look, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I got to talk about Sun Basket for a second, and you're about to understand why. Look, in a perfect world, I'd have enough time to cook dinner every night, and, and listen, there'd be some ambiance. I'm talking candles. I'm talking uh, some, light, uh, some light jazz, something by Kenny G, perhaps playing as my wife and I stare into each other's eyes and we enjoy some delicious home-cooked meal. But the truth is... That doesn't always happen. And yeah, when there's no time to cook, it's it's tempting to get takeout. But even then, you got you got to wait for your food. Who who needs to do that? Look, now instead of spending 20 minutes stressing about what to have for dinner, I use that time to prepare my own delicious, healthy meal with the new quick and easy meal plan from Sunbasket. Look, you know Sunbasket. Their meal kits always make it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home, no matter how much experience I have in the kitchen, you have in the kitchen. And, and now getting a meal on the table is even faster and more foolproof with Sunbasket's new quick and easy meal plan. I'm talking super fast Thai turkey lettuce cups or simple sausage tacos with bell pepper, chili salsa, and queso fresco. Come on. Look... Go to sunbasket.com slash curious today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash curious for $35 off Sunbasket. Sunbasket.com slash curious. I find that too with my friends. Like, Do you find as you get older that your tastes have sort of reverted back to the comfort foods of your youth? Yeah, I think so. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I find myself really like it's it's really um, great that I live in LA because there's so much good Korean food and like I but I. I like I always say like I can't move to the I would never be able to move to the West Side because you're too far away from Koreatown. Like I need to right. go be able to go to Koreatown at least like a couple times a month to eat Korean food. And then that's also what I think about when with my kids because they're half Korean but like I don't cook Korean food really. And so like they don't really yeah, that's not going to be like in their deep memory when right. they're older of like Korean food, you know, I and I want it to be. So, you know, I I'm trying to uh you know, trying trying to introduce that to them because I don't. Yeah, I don't want their memories of their like sense memories of like sentimental food experiences to all just be like kind of these cheesecake factory. Yeah, mac and che- mac and cheese and yeah. all that. Yeah. Wherever white people eat. You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, I go through that too, thinking about like my wife is Catholic, Irish Catholic, and I grew up like this hot blooded Jew in New York, and you know, it's just my mom and I. Whereas my wife has this big, wonderful family who is such a big reason why I fell in love with her was that she had this huge family. And yet I do think about that too, having kids one day and being like, oh man, like I, I feel like maybe the Judaism will be underrepresented. Right, right. You know, and yeah. I'm like, how am I going to, you know, infuse that into their lives? Yeah, yeah. totally. And I mean, like, I guess, and it's it's clearly a thing that almost every couple in history has grappled with, you right. know, was like the little bit of like how much of me is going to be in there and how much of you, you know? Right. But yeah, living in America, I mean, I think that that's the the tricky thing for me is like living in America, like the default is American food and American culture. And, you know, and even though that's how I grew up, like I like, you know, I I do want to feel a little bit of a Korean identity, you know, with my kids. And this is just one more tangent, but it's one thing that I love about I'm interested to hear your thoughts about like usually people that weren't born in the U.S. is that. Their kids are forced at a young age to try so many things and have a palate that's so open to, I mean, especially like Korean food, those flavors are distinct and strong and kimchi and all these things. And then, you know, but really from any other culture, and I feel like in America, we do things pretty bland, like (laughs) (laughs) tenders, mac and cheese, pasta. And and I feel like if, if people are picky teenagers or picky adults it was a failure of the parent to oh, yeah. not make them try shit yeah right totally totally but the thing is i don't understand i don't really know which which it is like do the do kids like with all things regarding to parenting i don't i like i think you know a lot of people will say you know the kids kind of end up they rebel for a little bit but then they kind of come home and they kind of they end up sort of wanting to recreate their childhood and, and, right. and bring those things back. But I know plenty of people also who just, like, they had a childhood where they ate, like, the same thing every night, and now all they want to do is eat crazy food all the time. Right. You know, and so, I, like, it's a real... I really wish I knew the answer because it would really make a big difference in how I chose to raise my kids because, like, I don't know, like, are they going to want to be, like... You know, are they are, are they going to, like, look back fondly on the way they were raised or are they going to go in the opposite direction? Like, it would be great to know that. It's hard. I find myself craving chicken soup way more now in my 30s as a Jew. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. like, yeah, like soup yeah. and just, like, certain, <laughs> certain things. Um, and I also think, like, it, you know, there is a balance, right? Because I find I, growing up with my mom and her friends that were all very East Coast Jewish, sort of the the prototypical or the stereotypical Jewish women, but in in the best ways. And I realize I'm overgeneralizing, so don't send me emails. But like I 
And then I think that part of me was why I was so attracted to someone like my wife, who I knew I was like, I'm going to marry a waspy shiksa, like a blonde haired goddess who's not Jewish and doesn't talk to me the way my mom does. Like, there's no way I'm ever going to marry my mom. And and that's true today. And yet then there's all these other parts of me that so hunger for the way I was I was raised and want to give that to my kids. I know. Yeah. And, And so was your mom, was she born and raised in New York? Jersey. Oh, Jersey. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, the other thing I, I worry about is just, like, the connection I would have to to that culture. You know, it's really already tenuous, you know, because, right. like, I don't speak Korean very well. You know, like, so, you know, the, whenever I've gone to Korea on vacation, it's always been with my parents. Right. You know, except for maybe once. And so, you know, like, when I become the oldest generation, like, am I even going to be able to, like, recreate it if I tried? You right. know what I mean? Like, I don't think I... Like, I would love to feel like I could take my kids to Korea and stuff, but, like, I would, that connection, the, the connection that made it easy would be gone. Do you feel any pressure from your parents to give your kids that, or are they just kind of, like, along for the ride? They're, my parents are just great about never pressuring me, even if that's what they think. Right. You know, so, I don't know. I'm, I go, like, so I kind of overcompensate. So, like, my, one of my kids, like, loves kimchi, Right. Which I think is hilarious because it's like spicy and you know and and she just like she just wants to like you know inhale it, which is hilarious. Love it. And so like I'm always like sending my parents like they don't they're not asking me about it. I'm just like kind of trying really desperately to like get them to like videos of your daughter. Yeah, it's just so, showing the videos. Cute. Yeah, because like I'm 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 I just want them to feel like that I you know that I give a shit even if they don't <laughs> personally. Maybe they don't give a shit. I but. could I could imagine the text in the video just like mom and dad but like. Going full chun on that kimchi right now. <laughs> I know, and yeah, it's like it's. I I I feel like I'm sort of over overcompensating, like in in some insecure way about like my own failure at being a good Korean. You know, like the the fact that maybe my daughter will be better at it than I am would be, I think, gratifying for my parents. <laughs> right, and so your dad's a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. And so, how did where did the creativity come from? Well, everyone always said my dad was funny, like. But he's he was like primarily funny in Korean, so I couldn't tell if it was true <laughs> right. or not. I don't know. I mean, I think uh, you know it's it, you know it came a little bit from wanting to sort of you know wanting to make friends and feeling a little bit insecure, so that that was part of it. I think I was partially you know I think maybe it's a little bit of my personality to not want to have to have wanted to sort of avoid the cliches the stereotypes, right. you know, of Asians, of, like, being really... I was really good at science and math, you know? Yeah, you went to college and majored in science, right? Yeah, it was a, a biological anthropology, which is, like, it's kind of science. It was, it's, like, it's science for wimps. But, like... But at Harvard. <laughs> no big deal. It's not science at L.A. Valley College, where I took one class once and dropped out. It's our local community college in the Valley. I'll tell you more later. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I just, like, I was really self-aware of, like... Or self-conscious of being like a piano playing math whiz, you know, Korean. Right. So I just wanted to be seen as something else. And so I remember even to that, like, I feel bad. Like in high school, like I was on sort of some of the nerdier clubs, like the trivia team and the math team and stuff. And like, I was like this, like, I was like, I was like uh, Allen Iverson. I was like, I wouldn't show up for practices and stuff. Damn, and I, tough I was just guy. like, I don't. Yeah, I was like, I don't really care about this. Like, I'll show up for the games, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But like, and I was being such a dick about it. But like, part of it was just like I didn't want to be branded as like the guy on the math team. 
That's awesome. <laughs> so That's I, like how I was a tough guy at performing arts high school. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, maybe I'll go to singing class, maybe not. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know. Maybe I won't warm up today. <laughs> um, and so, and you, and you're one of three, right? Mm-hmm. You're the middle. Yeah. And do you find, did you find that your brothers were sort of, your brothers are, are, artists as well or no my younger brother is uh really creative my older brother was also creative and he he was he participated in the arts and stuff but he professionally has gone into more sort of sports and business direction so maybe they took the pressure off like you could be the outlier going for more of the artistic thing he was definitely yeah he kind of he majored in economics and stuff so yeah he definitely was a little bit more kind of straight and narrow which was nice yeah um, and it's funny because I asked Jeremy this, and I'll ask anyone this, but uh, is it just fun to drop the the H-bomb <laughs> into the conversation? I mean, I want to be able to say Harvard. I want to be able to say UCLA. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, like in college, they call it the H-bomb, you know? Right. And they, they use it in the, in the in the in the context of, like, talking to talking to girls, like trying to, like, you know, hit on people. Right. It never worked a tiny, even a tiny bit. Not even co- a bit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the amount that people would like the, mythologize the H bomb and then the practical reality of it was just a complete opposite. It's like it right. never worked. And you know, I think maybe like if you know, I th- I think maybe like now that I'm if I if you know Jeremy, he's you know he's he is not hitched yet. Right. Um, you know, and I think that like maybe now with you know when you're when you're kind of sort of maybe a little more mature and you're sort of thinking about the whole picture of a person, maybe that that would be a little bit more meaningful to a girl. Right. But like in college, like at a freaking you know at a kegger or something, like no one cares. You know, like <laughs> right. you're 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 at, a, you're at a different school, like at Penn State or something. No one cares that some dude went to Harvard. Like, they just like they the you're just you're you're reading as a nerd to them, not as like a you know, whatever, boyfriend material. Yeah, it's not the currency you want it to be. Yeah. <laughs> and do you, I mean, obviously there's there's a spectrum of funny and it just so happens that a lot of incredibly funny, talented people come out of Harvard and the Ivy League and then there are people that never went to college that are so inherently funny that it's not fair. Do you find like, just as an outsider's perspective, from an outsider's perspective, I look at people that went to Harvard and, and why they tend to be so funny and have some so much success in Hollywood is that they've been prepared with a certain expectation of like of 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 workload, of what they have to um what you know the, what they have tasks that they have to complete. So at like a young age, at eighteen, you knew that like you were gonna have to deliver X, Y, and Z ev- at every turn. And I feel like that only compiles as you or compounds as you get more and more successful. Yeah, I mean, well, first I will say I think the vast majority of people at Harvard are incredibly unfunny. <laughs> right. But there are a lot of really funny people who came from there, and you know I think. Um, you know, there's certainly a lot of people who I've met, and not just from Harvard, who, you know, but they're like kind of smart analytical people, and they've kind of learned to be good at comedy almost by like approaching it as math or as like a science or something. You know, craftsman. I mean? yeah, 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 kind of, kind of studying the the form, the the formulas and the rhythms, and sort of, and and analyzing what makes something funny, and really applying. You think so? I think so, and really sort of really? applying themselves to comedy the way that they applied themselves previously to school or something like that. Mm. I've definitely met some people like that. You know, and the other thing for me was just 
I got training in it at school, and that's not something most people get in college. You know, when you're like 18, 19, 20 years old, most people don't have a place they can go like I did, which was the Harvard Lampoon, where you're sitting around funny people all day, pitching jokes, trying to, you know, trying to make each other laugh, you know, trying to outdo each other comedically. Like, like anything, it's a skill. It's a, and, and it's a, it's something that you you have to. It's like it's something you have to get better at, and with and you get better with practice. And just the the majority of people who I know who didn't go to Harvard and ended up out here, they were just like at some other college, and they just kind of felt like they didn't really fit in. They didn't have a club that they really cared about. They yeah. they were really into comedy, but they basically had like one funny friend, and they hung out with that person the whole time. And then they came out here with no experience you know, in writing comedy and, you know, maybe they took UCB classes or something and that was the community and they kind of, they started to have that community that they needed, you know, after college, which yeah. is also super important. Spending but, the years taking gen ed classes at SUNY Purchase and I know, shit. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So like, so there's so much, um, you know, I, I think there's a reason why there's these kind of feeders and like certain, certain schools that kind of seem to produce more comedy writers than other places, you know? It's not just Harvard, you know, like Emerson or or Syracuse. I see, I know a lot of people, you know. And I think it's because there is a little bit of a community there for whatever reason, you know? There's, like, there's, you know, there's a place where you could have you could go while you were in college and, like, learn it and get better at it. It's encouraged. Yeah. And do you, I mean, the Lampoon is sort of this mythical thing. So do they do any vetting before you get into college or is it something that once you're there then you just sort of meet the right people is it like a secret society like the skulls do you have to do any sort of it's it's kind of a it's a it's sort of a secretive society but the thing really i was just going i was just pulling <laughs> for that one but tell well, me there's more. like a building there's a building and you're not allowed in unless you're a member you're only allowed into the library and then the upstairs and the downstairs are off limits are there membership cards there are no membership cards. handshakes no. There's like you get a medal, you get like a so like solid, yeah. So like so there, you, I have a medal at my house. That really? I, if I were to wear it, I guess to the castle, I guess they would let me in without. I don't know, but I'm Bro sure you can also buy it on eBay. Is it a gold medal? It's like bronze or something or brass. Or okay, like a precious yeah. medal, nevertheless. Yeah, it has a picture of like a jester riding a horse. Or like that. <laughs> yeah. Solid. Um, but yeah, to get on, like the, it, it's a secret society. But the thing that makes it not quite a frat. Or, you know, or like a sorority or anything like that is that you, you know, it's ostensibly a meritocracy. You can get in, you know, you don't have to, it's not a social club. You know, the membership is based on writing ability as opposed to like whether or not you're pretty or cool or whatever. Right. So, and thank God, because the, <laughs> a lot of really ugly people ended up on the Lampoon and they wouldn't have any other social home at Solid. Harvard. <laughs> is, there, uh, is there any like, is there any hazing or vetting? Are you allowed to say? Well, the vetting is there's a there's a whole process. I mean, the whole the whole you, you spend a whole semester writing comedy pieces like you know that are sort of in the in the style of the magazine, and then they have a series of cuts. So like you know, you know the, you 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 get whittled down in a couple of stages, right? And then finally they have an election, and you know, and usually like a process that starts with like you know a hundred people, um, ends up being weeded down to something like four who end up making it on at the end of the semester. Right. I imagine it's like, I just imagine like 10 skinny comedy writers like naked in the middle of the night and like getting screamed at like, what are George Carlin's dirty words? <laughs> like, There's none of that. Five no. Rodney Dangerfield jokes. No. Where's Lenny Bruce from? 
it's really not like that at all. I mean, and like, yeah, there's no, um, it's, yeah, there's not really a whole lot of like, I guess there's some, there's some like, like kind of comedic scholarship going on in that building, but really it's mostly just a place where people go and like fuck around and, you know, and kind of learn by doing. There's not like a lot of like, I mean, there's always like a couple of people who are these like weird like students of comedy, the way sort of like Sam Levine's character on Freaks of Ge- Freaks and Geeks, you know, it's like <laughs> right. a little bit of a weirdo who's like obsessed with Gary Shandling and stuff like that. Right. But um, but no, there's for the most part, it's just like a bunch of like misfits who just want to like get drunk and be idiots and like pull pranks and you know and get in trouble. Be funny. Yeah. Do you think? But do you, was there a part of you entering into? You know, obviously your first gig being The Simpsons and having that workload be revealed to you where you're like, oh, I've been doing this for four years already. Like this is I can I can hang with this because I imagine that Harvard would require you to be, you know, operate at a certain level at all times. Whereas I just from the outsider perspective, watching sort of the grind of a TV show and having to churn out pages every day and have episodes ready. I mean, the workload's immense. Having gone to Harvard, I think, you know, or any sort of rigorous school, like, yeah, I think you, I guess that's good training for, you know, for any sort of job that's arduous and grueling. The thing, but one of the biggest things that uh, jumped out at me when I went into my first professional writing job was this idea that you have to be funny every day. You know what I mean? Like, most people, I think, who are creative types or, you know, musicians, artists or whatever, uh, especially when they're younger, they just feel like, you know, like I'll I'll do it when it, when mood strikes or like when right. the muse arrives. Reveals, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It's like so, like working on a TV show, especially you know, it's a little bit different with movies because you're kind of on your own a lot of the time. But like with TV show, you show up every day and you start writing a funny show. And like, like I think the biggest skill that differentiates sort of the amateurs and the professionals in comedy writing, at least, is the comedy professionals can can do it. Every day. They sum it every day. They show up to work, they clock in, and they're funny. You right. know what I mean? But and, would you gauge yourself having days like Monday through Friday, Friday would three of the days be a, you know, a eight, and then one day is a six, and one day is a ten? Like, or is it all pretty much at the same average every day? Um, early on, it felt like there would be days where I was like, oh, I suck today, and then, oh, I was really good today, and, you know. Right. But... You know, but I do think, you know, it's like, it's, it's a muscle. It's, it's something that you just kind of, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a muscle. It's a craft. And so now when I show up at a show, I don't really think of it as like, oh, I hope I'm funny today. I just think like, okay, this is my job. Like, this is how I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to perform at the same level. I pretty much try to perform at every day. Right. Yeah. I think there's also, I think that's true in the trouble with creativity and what kills me. And I don't know if you ever go through this is. You know, when people will say, even if people have a, I, I dealt with it the other day with a friend of mine who's like a really successful musician. And he was like, I'm going to try acting. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, first of all, we don't, I don't need any more competition. But I'm also like, you know, I think the reason why things like being a lawyer or a doctor is so revered is because the it bars entry because it requires so much work. Right. Like, so no one's flippantly being like, maybe I'll try law. Yeah, or, or like being a doctor, it's like no, it's going to be, you know, that's going to be ten years of your life. 
But with something creative, a creative endeavor, the romantic, the romanticized way it's portrayed is like just one day it all clicks and the planets align and all of a sudden you're great. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I, that kills me. <laughs> you know, because it's, it's so to the contrary. It's just, it, it's a lot of trudging like anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that that's, you know, something, yeah, that's, it took me a while to learn. Of course, there's always the exceptions, you know, and that's really frustrating when you see that. Someone right. who's like first scripts is incredible. Kind of you. <laughs> I mean, no, no. Your first not. job out of the gate being my first Simpsons? job, but yeah, no. I mean, I don't think like if I, I when I when I dig up the old scripts I wrote, I, they're a mess. Right. But yeah, I mean, there's always exceptions. But yeah, I mean, and so also so much of like at least writing for TV and comedy and, and and screenwriting is like the stuff that's not being funny. The other parts of it, you know coming up with the stories, the structure of it, writing characters well, writing dialogue well, and all that stuff. Um, and that stuff, you know, that's that's the sort of stuff that you can definitely learn. I'm not sure how much you can learn to be funny, like if you're not, you know, I think you can learn to sort of be f- funny-ish or like, a, you know, be kind of uh, like, like, you know, I, I think you can learn to be sort of... Adjacent uh, to funny. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, like kind of simulate funniness witty in a way but yeah. like you know but also that's like pretty close to what i think the definition of a hack is right you know but like truly funny people i don't know how much like they can just like learn that by sitting in a you know sitting in a room and 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 just like watching and and trying harder you know what i mean right there's certainly i think i think there's funny people who uh don't know how to like channel it into jokes or into scripts you know like they have the they have it in them but they haven't really figured out how to kind of like recreate it. There's so, and also there's plenty of really funny people, just like the funniest person you've ever talked to in your life. But then like as writers, like they like their scripts are not funny. You know what I mean? Right. And like le- I think you can learn to channel it into the script. But um, but yeah, there's not a lot of people I've met who I was like I don't know if they're very funny. And then like two years later, like they're hilarious. Right. It just sort of emerged. Yeah. No, I think that's so right because it was. It's funny. It was something that D'Onofrio was saying in the class the other day, of uh, to the effect of like, with all creative endeavors, there is sort of this thing, and and I know it, where you can do a lot of work on a scene and prepare, but inevitably sometimes you'll have a magic of the first two or three takes where it's really flying, and you're like, yeah. that was good. Yeah. Or like you walk out of an audition, and you're just like, oh, I'm so glad that went well. I wasn't sure. Yeah. You know. And yeah. Totally. Totally. That's so interesting. Yeah. Because like. I think, um, yeah, some of it is just like, yeah, yeah, yeah it's because it's still creative. So there's no, like, at the end of the day, you can't quite analyze exactly what makes it great, you know? Right. And I think, and that's why so many people's process, like, in making comedy is, like, they want to play or they want to have it feel loose and natural and they just want to kind of find something. Right. You know, and, like, you know, Apatow is famous for that, of just kind of, like, kind of messing around on set and throwing out different things and just kind of letting them improvise because sometimes magic happens. But you seem, from my recollection of when we were working together, you seemed a little bit more, you were open to that, but, and something that I like, you were like, I've spent a good amount of time (laughs) making sure these beats work. Let's honor this first. And then if we have the time, like we can try to beat it or one up it, or if something's not working, we'll fix it. But like, let's do what's written here because there's, as you know, like with comedy, there's such a rhythm. And whether yeah. you're funny or not, it's like music. You can hear a sour note. Yeah. Where something's not hitting right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I mean, you're a really funny improviser. And I think, um, you know, certain, some, some act, some performers, 
uh, have experience with that, and and some don't. And you know, sometimes I just feel like I love to let actors play because I I, I think that that's you know I, I want I want them to be happy and I want them to uh, and sometimes you do get great stuff. But a lot of the times, I mean, like I've certainly worked with actors who they're not, they're not comfortable with that. They don't, right. you know, that's not how they work, and and it's just rare that you know, and you know, in the business of making TV shows, you have a limited amount of time. So like, you know, if you've got a cast, not saying that this was the grandfather cast, but just hypothetically, if you've got a cast where you know the, they're 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 just not improvisers by nature, you know, do you really want to like use up a quarter or a third of your takes on just stuff that almost never is going to end up in the show right right of course um the other thing is also like and i'm i i probably am a little too attached to sort of the sort of the, the way that the lines sort of are inter are sort of interlocked with each other right you know but sometimes in sometimes sometimes in improv like you you'll throw out a little piece of dialogue or a little piece of a line that is actually in my opinion important you know what i mean right you know like oh that was oh, we needed that part you know and and that's so sometimes, like, I'm a little afraid of improv for that reason. It's like, because, like, oh, there's, like, there's two things that are actually really important to get across in this scene. And when when sometimes in improv, like, that gets thrown away. Right. And to I serve think, the joke for the moment. Yeah. And I think certain writers are a little bit more loose and on the fly, and they can sort of try to adapt to it or something. But, you know, a lot of the times, you know, in my experience, like, you just end up being like, well, like, yeah, that was a funny joke, but it really kind of, destroys the episode <laughs> right. in some way. But we're, yeah, we're not going anywhere special now. I mean, The Office was like, you know, Carell, one of the greatest improvisers, you know, alive. And then, you know, and then, you know, Ed Helms also incredibly good. So, and then, you know, and, and Rain Wilson, even though he wasn't from that background, really funny, you know, Krasinski so, and, and, you know, Ellie Kemper. And so really funny improvisers. So in that, in those ones, we would often let them really play because... They were just funnier than us sometimes. Well, and I imagine, too, it, it probably, there was a lot more playing going on season five than season sure. one, right? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I would imagine. Yeah, I wasn't there early on. But yeah, I think at a certain comfort level. You know the characters. You sort of, yeah. everyone's in a good, yeah, yeah, a good vibe. Totally, totally. Um, and it also, it's like, it's the, t- it's the style of the show. And I think that the show, The Office, kind of started to write a little bit more towards a framework where you could play within it. You know what I mean? Right. Like the lines maybe weren't written in such a kind of a precise, tight way that you couldn't you couldn't undo any of it. You couldn't like unzip it or else it would all fall apart. I think it's also I was listening to Sorkin interview the other day and and you know they sort of nicely said, You love your words. <laughs> <laughs> right. And he was like, Yeah. And and he said there's not a lot of rooms for yas and buts or right. us. Yeah. In my writing, he said, because I like dialogue that sounds written. He said, because there's a musicality to it. He said, because I grew up with musicals and theater where it's all on the page. Right. And he said, you know, I might have a payoff at beat 20 that needs to be set up in beat five. And if you're not working towards that or you veer off, then all of a sudden 20 becomes, it doesn't land. Right. And... And so I think there's I think there's there's definitely a balance and I think what's been sort of on trend as of late and Apatow is the best example of it because he sort of created that is put two funny people in a room and run the cameras. Right. But then sometimes I think it's easy to sort of lean on and just say well something'll come out and we've got the time to shoot it. Yeah. And sometimes I think it comes across where you're like Did, was this scene really written or Right. 
was this kind of just sort of edited together as best you could? And when I think about that, I also sometimes I wonder, you know, I've never been an actor, but I think part of also why, like, those those scenes where they it feels like they were just playing and it feels like kind of, you know, and you get the sense that maybe it was improvised, like, part of what I think my theory would be about why those are appealing is also just because acting is really hard. Like, acting, like, acting natural or real, um, but being really faithful to the script takes a lot of skill right you know and it's not so so a lot of times i feel like those moments just are more fun to watch because they people they really were being natural and real you know what i mean yeah they're organic yeah and so even if so even sometimes i feel like maybe the written the scripted joke was funnier than but like you you're willing to sacrifice that because this moment just feels light and real and normal and it doesn't feel like two people sort of acting and sort of you know and, and you know in 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 a way that in some sort of instinctual way feels a little bit fake. You know what I mean? Well, I think it's such a good example of when we made Grandfathered and seen like, I feel like John and I were of that elk where we like to play more because, you know, we probably felt more comfortable as ourselves and exactly inhabiting every single line. And yeah. then there was Paget who was probably funnier than the both of us who was like, we don't, she was like, I don't, I don't need to play. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll say the words. And, yeah. and it was like, but she was a craftsman and yeah. she devoted her full respect and attention to the words and made them fly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was so interesting on that show to just sort of learn the different ways each of you sort of approached uh, the same job. Right. You know? And yeah, Paget was really, you know, cause I've certainly worked with people who just have to kind of do it from a very sort of ground up, like from inside their soul that is where it starts, you know? Right. It's like, I got to like understand what I'm feeling in this moment and I got to really inhabit that and that, and then, and then I'll learn the words and then, but if the words don't, for, but if the words don't feel consistent with that, then I'm going to have to change the words. Like, I'm, I'm not going to, I can't say this line, you know, like I've worked with actors who's like, I can't say this line. It just doesn't feel right. Right. And that happens. And like Paget. You know, who, yeah, I agree. He's, like, incredibly funny, incredibly talented, like, one of the greatest uh, people I've ever had, you know, worked with on a show. She'll say any, if there was, like, a crazy typo in the line, (laughs) you know what I mean? So the line doesn't, literally doesn't make sense. She would not have brought it up with us. She would have just said it in the best way she could and just, like, been, like, my job is to figure out a way to make that line make sense. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that's those are the lines. Those are the words I'm supposed to say. <laughs> right. So, like, my job is to just try to do it well. Figure it out. Yeah. And do you think that, you know, it, I, I'm interested to know exactly because, and I guess this is me revealing something as far as, so you were nice enough to cast me on Grandfathered. Thank you again. You're welcome. I'm honored. I was waiting for that. I, I feel so lucky. And, and Grandfathered was where we got to meet and how I got to, you know, see greats like you and Jeremy sort of at work and so the character that you had written for that I got was lucky enough to play was slightly or maybe majorly influenced by your younger brother right or a lot of it yeah in the beginning yeah in the early on yeah and then it kind of adapted more towards to sort of you know we kind of write it wrote it more towards you as we got to know you but early on it was sort of in you know kind of based on him right yeah and that sort of leads me to my question because and I'll give you like some insight into my experience where I felt as though I I got I was lucky enough to meet your younger brother and he was awesome and I immediately saw the parallels between the character and him. And then there were times where I was like, I'm not sure if I'm quite hitting this or the way that or honoring Danny's brother or or whatever the inspiration was yeah. in 
I wasn't sure whether I was quite hitting the beats that maybe were in your head or what was required of it. And I was just doing the best that I could with sort of my, you know, set of tools. Yeah. So for you, like, obviously you create a character in your head and then you cast the actor. Like, what's it like sort of seeing someone take this character who you made and then make it your own, make it their own for better or for worse at times? Yeah, I mean, that's like, that's a thing that I've definitely... Um... That's that's one thing that I've been trying to um, get better at, really, as a writer. And, you know, again, like starting at The Simpsons, you know, it was already well-established, and those people were... And it was also animated, so it was a little bit more malleable where you, you, you would write the script, and the actors who had been doing it for, for so long, you knew you were going to basically... You knew what you were going to get. Right. You know, and the animation, you know, you could... If it, if it wasn't right, you could change it. Right. Um... And but on a show like Grandfathered and other shows like live action shows I've worked on, I've I've realized like Speechless, which is the show I'm on right now. I think um, I've realized how important it is to to be willing to adjust and to be willing to kind of you know f- find what works best for the person who's who's inhabiting the role. Like and like for you, I, you know, for example, like yeah, it was kind of originally based on my brother because I felt like it was it was going to be sort of this millennial character, right? This like kind of sort of, you know, boyish guy who had all these kind of geeky interests. Um, and my brother, I felt like, had a really sort of, a, was a very unique version of that and not sort of the cliche version you, you've seen a million times on TV. And so right. that's why I was like, okay, like, there's, like, there's, 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 there's quirks and there's specificity in that that I want to channel so that this character doesn't feel boring. Right. Um, and, yeah, and you came in the audition and you were amazing and we loved you. But as we wrote the show, what we found, like, that we liked the most from you was... You know, rather than sort of playing you as a boy, uh, as a kind of a as a kind of a boyish man, was playing you uh, as like this kind of winning, mature um, guy who was just really trying his hardest and 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 you know, sort of trying to be this kind of grown up adult man uh, that his father, his own father, was not. Right. You know what I mean? And so that was we found that. So we had started to write towards that more. You know. Because that was a dynamic that we really, as as we kind of fell in love with John's character Jimmy being this like incredibly immature, ridiculous playboy um, child, <laughs> right? You know, like it felt like the, the the really nice counterpoint to that was you as you know being his son, but being so much more trying of a, to do of the a right grown thing. up and a, of, of a of a moral moralistic and um, person with integrity than he was, which you know, which I thought was you know really worked and and so we, yeah we did kind of change the character on the fly and that was like because of you you know if we, if we cast somebody else you know we probably would have you know gone in a different direction right yo what's up guys it's Josh Peck i i mean i know you were just listening to me and now this is like a weird interjection but it, just stick with me for a second did you know that every single episode of curious is now on spotify <laughs> I know. What what did you do something right? What did what did you rub a genie lamp? Well, let me tell you, yes, the same app that has millions of songs now also has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows, and you know, curious, and discover new ones, not too many, but yeah, sure, enjoy. Uh, have have your fun. To subscribe to our show, search for Curious, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify. They're streaming right now and now 
And now. Do you think that, so I'm interested because I think people, you know, it's it's so interesting to see that like at every point when you write a pilot and then it gets optioned and then you actually get the chance to make it and then it gets picked up and then you get a season and then maybe more. It's like you, the percentages become smaller and smaller. But even the mere fact of, of finishing a pilot is a small percentage. And then at each step, you're sort yeah. of distilled down more. So for you, like, because I think people are interested, how did you, because I know you met John first, will you take us through just, you know, yeah. an abbreviated of like how it started and yeah. all the way through making the show? Totally, yeah. And so that's this was kind of like, this was my second or a third development cycle that I had um, been a part of. And um, I'd never had a show on the air at that point. And so uh, my agent wanted me to do something for a star, you know, because that you know, for, for, for a lot of reasons. I think creatively it can be inspiring to know who you're writing for. Right. Um, oh, Hollywood likes stars? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that helps you get a show made? <laughs> gotcha. And, um, and so he, uh, he, he, put, he paired me up. He, he set me up on a, just like a, like a breakfast or, um, with, uh, with John. And I was just like, I'm, I'm just going to kind of think of some ideas to pitch him. You know, I just want to like come up with some shows, show ideas for John. Right. And so I, I came up with the idea for grandfather. I pitched it to him. I was like a little bit afraid because I was like, yeah, would you play a grandfather? Like, yeah. And John, to his credit, like loves to make fun of himself. What'd, but what'd you have for breakfast? Do you remember? I don't remember. It was at the Glen Deli on Beverly Glen. Fancy. I really don't remember. I'm sure he had like one egg white or something. Yeah. Something and like, perfect. And like a, and like a, yeah, like a. A tomato slice. That's so him. Um, Whatever you said that you ate, you would have. I'm sure every writer that listened to this would be like, I guess I got to start eating more oatmeal. <laughs> so you get the creative juices flowing. Um, no, my my like I'm I'm always like eating like two breakfast burritos and then like taking a three hour nap and be like, why did I do that? I need to stop. I need to learn that the food I put in my body affects how I feel. No one needs that. <laughs> you, you do CrossFit in your garage. You're doing fine. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I pitched him the idea. He liked it. Like. So we both called this, our agent, who's the same guy, and said, like, hey, we want to work on this together. And our agent, um, you know, who, whose, whose job is to kind of come up with, like, you know, think about the business side of it, was like, you know what would really make this, you know, a killer package would be Dan Fogelman coming on board as a producer, you know, this big shot, you know, you know, producer, writer, guy. Yeah. Um, and also he, you know, and, and he's, and he writes like emotional stories, like kind of, you know, he's, he's like the, pre, like maybe the preeminent guy in Hollywood right now with his show, This Is Us, of like writing emotional sort of character family stories. Right. So, so it did make creative sense as well. Uh, and so we all sort of met, we talked about it, we came up with, uh, you know, we went out to like Craig's and talked about the show and, and, um, I came up with the pitch and and then we you know we went around town and you know and I and I pitched it you know with those guys in the room which having them in the room helps sure and uh, yeah and then we were sort of off to the races and and we we um, and at that time Fox was sort of had had a little bit of a, of a blank slate of what they were doing and so they were like maybe we're maybe we're the John Stamos network now. Um, and when you're pitching it, is it sort of the standard way we think of pitches, which is like how do I give the strongest, most exciting two and a half minute, you know, sort of pitch that I can right now and then we'll get into logistics later? Or is it sort of more of a long-winded, it's like... It's more of like a, like, and and I, I feel like my pitches are always too long, but it was probably more like a 15-minute pitch. Gotcha. Um, but I think, like, the average, I would say, like, a you know, my target is usually, like, 
10 or 12 minutes as a pitch. And is it a great, are you telling a great story? Like that you would, like we all have them, right? right. And is that the feeling of it? Like you're never, like get on this, like buckle up because this ride's <laughs> about to be crazy. <laughs> I, no, the, the answer to that is hell no. I mean, I'm not, you know, I think that that's like, there's so many great pilots out there where it's like someone's personal story and like by the end of it, everyone in the room, like in like the Fox, you know, in, in like the Fox executive building is sobbing or something like that. <laughs> right. That's not me. You know, I've never had that and I've never done that. And like, so for me, it was really just like, here's the beats. Yeah. Here's like, well, here's, here's, you know, I think the pitch is usually structured to me. You know, when I try a pitch, I try to structure it. Like here's sort of like the hook of it. Like here's what I think is like the thing that, um, the thing I want to lead with, whatever that is, whether it's a, a character or a, or a dynamic or just, or, or, a, or a, pre, you know, a premise, right. whatever that is, just to get them on board. You know, it is in, in a certain way structured like a story, the pitch, you know, you do have to grab them at the beginning right. and then you have to, and then like kind of create a few questions in their mind of like, you know, and then answer those questions before they have to ask them. Right. And so you really feel like my goal always is like early on, create interest Make sure that they, you know, tell them, get them excited for the same reason I'm excited about it, whatever that is. And then, and then for the next, whatever, eight, 10 minutes, um, prove that I've really figured this out and I've thought about it and I know it like the back of my hand. Like, here are the characters, here's the world, here are some, you know, here are some of the possible adventures they have or the funny situations you put them in. The season one arc or, like, the entire shit? Like, if you gave me six seasons, right. like, I've got... Because I've heard that before, like... And and I find it's a 50-50 thing where some executives will be like, we don't expect you to know what happens if we this goes 10 seasons. Yeah. Or some will be like, it'd be great to see if you actually have the next 100 episodes thought out or at least an overall directional and maybe that's more plot based shows i think like i yeah if it was like if you're pitching uh, a real lost uh, yeah then i think you would i'm sure you'd be expecting that question and you'd need to have an answer right for me usually i i just i i i I half expect that question and so i half figure it out like i kind of like i spend a little time trying to make sure like okay if they ask me like what's season three about the show like have some answer for that right but I very rarely, they, they, in my experience, they very really want me to unprompted walk them through the whole first season or the whole arc of the series. Like, they just are bored. They have a point. lunch. Yeah, they're <laughs> they bored. They need to get to. Like, they've got 15 other pitches that day. Um, so, no, I'm not going to, you know, I, I'm always hyper concerned of just being boring right. in those pitches. So I always try to, like, kind of get the get the essential stuff out. Then if they have questions, feel like I have the answers to those questions. Right. You know, but 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 only if they ask them. And then what do you and I had this experience, you know, I only knew what my experience was being on the show and and feeling like, you know, how hard we worked and 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 how well it was received and and then inevitably us not getting picked up for the second season. Like I, I'd love to know if you're if you're willing to sort of elaborate on it a little bit of like what's it like being because you were truly I was an actor for hire and this was your baby and then inevitably just with um, how challenging and competitive the TV landscape is to inevitably go like all right so we're only going to make one one season of these and I'm going to have to move on to the next thing yeah well I mean the the job of like show running especially on like a network show like one kind of nice thing about it is it's 
so hard and so unpleasant that like by the end of it, like you're always half okay. Like right. you're always like Relieved. ultimately fine either way. Right. You know, that's how I felt. I was like, I, of course I wanted to come back, but if it doesn't like my, like my, my, like my quality of life will You're like, I have a be beautiful like, wife and the kids. The color of my hair will come back. <laughs> like, yeah, I'll probably like be able to get back in shape and eat, you know, things that I want, you know, whatever. Jason Alexander said about Larry David at the end of every Friday night tape in a Seinfeld that Larry David would walk away going, it can't be done. Can't do it again. It can't be done. <laughs> you know? And that was like mid-season when they had the next 10 episodes That's, written. Yeah. It's like, it can't be done. It's, yeah, every time, it, it feels like you're climbing whatever, how many episodes you do. We did 22 in that first season. Like, it feels like 22 times I've, I had to climb a mountain, you know? I bet. But, like, yeah, it's difficult. But, you know, like, I'm realistic about the state. Of, like, I you know, first of all, it was not, like, my, it was not my baby in the way that some shows are someone's baby where it's, like, this is about my family. You know what I mean? Sure. So I had a little bit of distance in that way. You know, I think, like, I'm on a show, Speechless, right now that's, you know, really based on the creator's life and... You know, and I think he, for a long time, he resisted doing that show because he knew it was going to be so raw and so personal for him that for it to go wrong or for it to, you know, be unpleasant in the in one of the billion ways it can go it can go wrong. Right. You know, he would have been really sort of damaged and hurt by, about that, and it would have taken a lot to get over that. So for me, I had a little bit of that distance, thankfully, but it still was. You know, obviously it was. It was it was really tough to feel like you put in that much work and you have all these people who, who you've employed and and you love them all and you want to keep it going and you want to keep telling more stories and you're having fun and by the end of a season often you feel like oh we finally have it figured out, you know I hope we can do some more because like it's going to be so much easier the next time. Right. So yeah, all those feelings, but like I'm realistic. It's like I've been on I've been on shows before, you know where. Uh, that I was happy about. I we were proud of the show. Didn't get picked up because you know this. That's Things the state you of TV, couldn't control. and that's the state of TV right now. You know, like I've been on so many shows where the ratings were borderline, and then the show does not come back, and the next season they come out with a bunch of new shows, and the ratings are worse. Right. You know what I mean? That's just and that's just because of the, the overall way that TV's going or whatever, and and and, and the way that they're uh, the way that the ratings are not necessarily sort of reflective of how people watch TV nowadays. And so um, I wasn't surprised, you know. I, like, I I kind of, I was braced for it because, like, they, they drag it out for months. They give you plenty of time to think about it and, <laughs> right. and get ready for it. And then um, and then by that time, I wasn't surprised. And, like, they remember they took us off the air for, like, a month, and then they aired, like, the final three episodes or something, like, a month later. Yeah. It's like they were, it was like they were trying to, like, you know, snuff it out intentionally almost, you know what I mean? It's yeah, it's so funny. And then you know, I I did an Amazon pilot two years before Grandfather, like in 2014, and we were so proud of it. And then I remember Amazon took us out to this beautiful dinner with all the producers and the actors, and the show had premiered and it was doing great. The pilot, and they took us out to dinner the two nights before. They said we're not picking up the show. Oh my god! I'm like motherfuckers. <laughs> like I didn't need dinner. Yeah. <laughs> like who are you trying to prove? Like what yeah. are you trying to prove? And, yeah. I mean, the dinner was delicious, so I guess if nothing yeah, else, yeah, it's better than not getting the dinner. I guess but... I suppose paying for your own dinner. Yeah, but no, I mean it's yeah, like that's. I think the most successful people in this industry are the ones who don't get hung up on failure and just keep on going. You know what I mean? Like 
There's like yeah. I feel like the ones who are really and by successful I mean rich. I mean like <laughs> right. the ones are the ones who are literally like I've got five things going on right now. Okay, this one just died. Okay, it doesn't matter. I have two other things that I want to do. I'm just gonna keep going and going and going. You Something know what I mean? will hit. Like, if you're the kind of person and like you know, it's nice to be idealistic and artistic about stuff. But like if you're the per- kind of person who's like I've got one story in me and I need to tell it and this you're is my screwed. one shot. Oh my god! And then you know like then you're. Yeah, you're screwed. I mean, you know, uh, speaking of our friend Dan Fogelman, who had three or four shows on the air that only went a season or two. Yeah. And then he just is like, all right. And then Grandfather doesn't work out, and his next <laughs> his, his, his next one is This Is Us. Yeah. But you think he's happy? <laughs> you know? right, yeah, no, that's true. Good point. Yeah, he's probably miserable. Yeah, it's, it's yeah exactly. Success. Yeah, heavy is the head that wears a crown, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's yeah, it's not good. So, okay, so um, my last two questions, because I don't want to keep you here all day, and because I'm an actor, and and I've always wanted to ask this question of anyone who's been in the decision-making seat, and I asked Jeremy this, what is, when you're sitting and you're auditioning actors, you're testing actors, what do certain actors do when they walk in the room where you go, you're not the guy? Like, an immediate thing where you're like, fuck off. You're not the guy. What was Jeremy's answer? Jeremy's answer was that if you're not off book, that if there's not, like, a certain appreciation for at least the writing and the rhythm of things, if you're really attached to the paper. Uh Uh-huh. That's um, a good answer. Yeah. That's a really good answer. Mine is probably more petty. It's like someone comes in and tries to be a little too chummy with me or something. Well, that's a thing, right? You know? Just a little bit, like, just in a, you know, I like, sweaty. I don't know if that term... You know, like the term sweaty, that's a comedy term, like sweaty, like trying too hard, you know? Right, desperate. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's you know, it just rubs you the wrong way, you know? Someone who comes in, I know that you're, I mean, I know that they're nervous, and I know that, like, I, I would be, you know, I'd be shitting bricks if I were in that position. But, you know, like, someone who has a, the sort of the social intelligence to either c- cover it up in some, you know, in, in, in some sort of normal-ish way. Right. Or is actually confident which is always impressive well i feel as though there's also an aspect to whether you know it or not that you are gauging of like yes i want this person to be great but also life is too short like is this a person that i'm not going to mind spending eight months a year with yeah right totally yeah yeah there's i mean it's very rare in an audition that someone will like do something that makes me feel like oh i hate you (laughs) you know (laughs) i don't want to spend any more time with you that's pretty rare but like um but yeah, there's just like, it, there's a certain like, it's almost like an unspoken like social contract. Just like, I know that this is a weird dynamic. I know you're nervous and I know I'm in this weird power, dy- it's, a, it's just a really horrible power imbalance. But like, let's all just pretend that this is kind of a normal thing people do. Right. You know what I mean? Like, let's all just... There's no way around it. Yeah. And I think if you were able to do that, then it just shows me you have a little bit of that social intelligence and that maturity that, uh, that tells me like, you're a healthy human being. Right. You're like you 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 get it on some level. I mean, I find that I I almost and maybe it's because I'm I'm calloused and cynical at this point. Like I know, especially pilot season, but for any audition, like I'm one of twenty guys here that are all coming to say these words, and it's like let me get in and out of here as quickly as possible. Uh-huh. Like let me help you by either being the guy because you've. I always imagine, and what we say, you know, if you want the the secret actor speech, is that, like, I've had actor friends being, like, a great writer has written a character that presents a problem to them because now they've written this thing and they have no one to play it. So you're there to solve their problem, like, to go in there and be like, here you go. Like, this is how I see it. Yeah. And 
And in that same breath, it's also to, to say, here's how I see it, and it's the wrong way. I'm not the guy. But you need to see 10 more of me right. so that the right guy reveals itself. Yeah. You know? And so it's like, let me get in and out of your hair as quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, acting is, it's just, it's, it's, acting is hard, writing is hard. And like, I feel like, you know, when I, when, you know, I'm still, uh, thankfully, like, I'm, I'm excited enough about this industry and what I get to do that, like, when I write something, like, casting is so much fun for me because I'm just like, I want to see my words come to life. It's like the most fun thing. It's like people dream of seeing this, you know? Right. So it's just like, and then, like, in, invariably, like, after like an hour of casting, I'm just so miserable. You know of what I mean? course. I'm just so depressed because I'm just like, oh, like, do I suck as a writer or does just everybody in this town suck as actors? Like, what's going on? Why isn't right. this what it looked like in my brain? But do you think that, because this is my take on it after, and it's only taking me, you know, 21 years to realize this is like, <clears throat> you, every time that I've tried to do on the page what I think the writer wants or imagined is when I walk away hating my, my life, <laughs> hating myself. Yeah. Every time that I read it and I go, I have, I'm going to serve the writing and yet I have an yeah. opinion on how this should go and I'm going to craft something. Yeah. Maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, but I'm going to have the guts, the courage of my conviction to present this. Yeah. Because I found more times than not that the writer, the director, they don't know exactly what they want. They want you to show, like, give us something. Yeah. That we can attach our wagon to. Yeah. There's almost obvious, there's almost always an, a really obvious uh, way to play it, right? You know what I mean. And so, like, rest assured, I've seen that fifteen times already. Right. You know what I mean. And so, like, yeah, it's really fresh and exciting to see someone come in and, yeah, still understand what the li the lines are about, but just do it in a way that feels like, oh, this is this is different. I like this. You know, like they 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 found something that just feels different. And and that's just what like interesting acting is to me. You know what I mean? Like that's like the first time I feel like I noticed acting was like Mark Ruffalo and You Can Count on Me where he had he played this character and like this kind of slacker character, but he had all these like weird ticks and nuances where I was just like, "Oh, you are this is like so like like I I I was like I was like a teenager. I was, like, I was almost confused. Like is this guy just like is this a documentary? Like what is going on? Like how like, how come he's, like, being so interesting right now? Right. You know what I mean? And, you know, and it wasn't, like, in a sweaty or overdone way, but I was just, like, this is, feels, like, authentic and, and surprising, and he's, you know, and, like, and it, and it just wasn't obvious at any, at any points, you know? Right. And that was really, you know, so you sometimes, when you get that, and, like, I think you did that, and, you know, like, Paget I think, was, was you know, you know, both of you, I think, like, kind of brought something different. But then there's also times where, like, especially in comedy where, like, there's just a certain way I wrote these jokes and, like, why can't anyone hit the jokes? Like, hitting, a, being able to hit a joke is a skill that a lot of actors don't have. Right. You know, and, you know, it's just, it's a hard, comedy's hard, right? So, like, you know, f you know, just as another example, like, Kelly Jenrette, like, you know, who was... Uh, On a lease. Yeah, who was also, like, one of the leads of the show. Like, sh she got cast just because, like, we had she did it exactly the way I had saw it in my brain and like nobody else had to that point. We had seen, you know, dozens of people and she was the first person who was like, oh my God, that is the that is what I thought it was right. in my brain. So I think it's it, it can work either way, you know, and especially I think in comedy sometimes it's just the precision of being able to hit the jokes. But um, but yeah, like with you, when it comes to like inhabiting a character and sort of interpreting dialogue and, and creating a character from it, like, you know, yeah, you 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 were certainly that and Paget. And 
and so my last question is, is what's your, will you take us quickly through your process as a writer when you're approaching something new and like, is it, you know, do you thoroughly outline things? Do you just beat around an idea for a couple of months and talk it at nauseum? And then like, how do you, how do the words inevitably get put on the page? It used to just be, I used to not have a system, you know, but yeah, for the last few years, like I have, you know, again, sort of learned that like, this is a craft, like there's a way, there's a right way to do it. You know, it's like, it's not, even though you think of it as like, I'm just like, I'm a writer, I'm just doing something, I'm making shit, I'm being creative, like yeah. I can do it however I want. Bukowski at the typewriter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah, my, my process gen, tends to be like, I'll just, first I'll just think about it a lot, like write down notes, like anything, I, anything, whether it's like a character or a joke or, or a moment, uh, a surprise, whatever, I'll just like think about all that stuff. And then I'll start, I'll start kind of outlining it in a very vague sort of broad way, you know, and that's when I use index cards usually, unless, you know, if I have that at my disposal, I'll start sticking up index cards and it'll just be like, you know, a handful of index cards per act. Right. You know, so it's, you're not, you're not going into deep into the moments of each scene and, and every, every, every beat of the scene. You're really going into like, you know, you know, they meet, they hate each other you know, they get stuck in the rain together and now they start to, you know, get along or whatever, you know. Right. Just the big moments. And then the act breaks. Certainly I, I have to I have to know what the act breaks are. Right. You know. And then once I feel like I have that, you know, sort of like the, the story in terms of like index cards at that level of depth, that's when I will write a proper outline. And I'll basically each index card will turn into a scene. Right or something, and that'll that'll be like a paragraph on on my word processor, and 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 once I have an outline, then and I feel really strong about it. Ideally, that's that I I won't start writing until that has happened, and the thing that usually happens though is like I hate outlining so much that like I'll outline it halfway or I'll like I'll do like a really kind of rushed outline and then I'll start writing and then I'll be like so happy, just like clicking away on my typewriter, writing, writing, writing. Um, and then like, I'll realize, oh shit, I should have outlined it better because this, this, I'm stuck. Right. You know? So like the lesson always is like outline, 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 get the story rock solid and then just write it into a script and like, and, and, you know, basically dialogue it out and find the jokes. And that's the most delightful part of the job. But almost invariably because outlining sucks so bad, I just want to start writing the jokes and then I realize, like, oh, the story is completely flawed. I have to start over. Because outlining's so unsexy. It's not fun. It's Damn. the worst part of it. Yeah. There's no movie about a great writer who just spends the entire movie outlining, I know. <laughs> like sorting the beats. Yeah, yeah. Figuring it out, saving the cat. <laughs> Damn it! It's a good book. Danny, thank you, dude. You're uh, my guy. <laughs> this has been amazing. This is great. My first podcast. This is um, really. Oh yeah. Don't do any more after this. I, I promise mine. you, I won't. <laughs> Please, because I, I, I was very nervous the whole time. You killed it. I don't think I, I don't think I had fun. <laughs> you didn't. You no, s- it was you, great. You seemed no. Rough. I love hanging out with you, and the fact that there were microphones. I was just like, these are just these two. Yeah, whatever. It's just we'll people catch get up. to see people. The world gets to see how much fun. I have chatting with my guy, Jeff Beck. Well, I uh, I will reveal that in your email when I asked you to do this, you were like, it, I'm sort of terrified. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and then I was like, no, no, don't worry. It's going to be great. And so none of that, none of that came across. I'm telling you. 
Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, you're very comfortable. <laughs> and you got a LaCroix out of it? I, mean, I know. I got a free LaCroix. That was great. We've got some high-end drinking. I got drinking. to charge my laptop on one of your outlets. That Whatever awesome. you need. Yeah. Um, my power is your power. <laughs> I, it's one thing I did talk to Jeremy about it, about the litany of snacks that every writer's room has. Yeah, it's yeah. just disgusting. It's horrible. It's the only thing to look forward to in a writer's room is, you know, in the dog days of figuring out how to write episodes. Yeah. It's like the great lunch and dinner that's coming. Yeah, yeah. It's so you get such a weird relationship with those snacks too because like there's also like you get really sort of like annoyed when you see someone who's not on the staff like taking your snacks. Totally. And even I, though you didn't pay for them, you know, they're right. free snacks, but you just see like who's that person? Why are they taking our granola bars? Yeah. Get out of here. What are, you, what are you, a PA? And the other thing that's disgusting to me is when I go to a different show and I see their snacks. Yeah. I like there's something so sickening to me about seeing thinking about their like their hands reaching into these and they're these kind of like there's like rolled up bags of Doritos that don't have a clip on them. Right. You know, I just like I, I find it and then like little residue of like hot sauces like in like a little ring of hot sauce on the on the on the counter. You know, like I, I just find for some reason I just find it's <laughs> Disgusting. Yeah. Or like, oh, you have the off- you have the Costco peanut butter pretzel brand. Like, right, yeah, yeah. You, you don't have the Trader Joe's one. Like, yeah, yeah. And to losers. me, that's like this like means like I'm a it's because I'm a better writer than you. Right. It's because I, like they they, they shell out for the for the like the, the, the store the, the name brand. Yeah, we're doing just fine over here. Yeah. Enjoy your roll golds. <laughs> <laughs> uh thanks, dude. Yes. So happy to be here. Boom, that was it. Daniel Chun, Danny, the D-man, the Chunster, the Chun effect. I don't know why I say it like that. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that to his face. I feel like he'd be disappointed in my attempt at, uh, at, at giving him a weird nickname. Anyway, guys, thank you for listening. I hope you had a great time. I had a great time. I, I have a great time hanging out with you, you know, wherever you listen to this pod. And... I'm going to continue to work at getting better and better and better. And you, the audience, you guys are going to, you're going to turn into like an unforgiving father figure for me, whose affection I am just trying to, I'm trying to win at every turn and I'll do whatever it takes, dad. I mean, audience. (laughs) So, um, guys, have a great week. Forgive yourself. Be good to yourself. You know what I mean? Because I love you. I'm going to say it. Maybe you don't hear it enough. I love you. You're enough. How about that, right? Let that wiggle around your brain box for a hot minute. And think about that. You're enough. Yeah. And you're doing the best you can. And that's enough. Oh my God. What the fuck? Yo, guys. Thank you again. Have a great week. See you next week. Okay? Bye.